I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much we care about your world my guest is Richard Hurwitz. He's a writer and founder and publisher of the Octavian Report. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, History Today, and the Jerusalem Post, among many other publications. And he's the author of this wonderful new book that we're going to be talking about today, In the Garden of Righteousness. The Heroes Who Risked Their Lives to Save Jews During the Holocaust. Richard Horowitz, welcome. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this book. Um, it was profoundly moving to read these stories of, of just tremendous kindness and humanity, especially considering the tremendous risks these people took to save people's lives. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you found the book powerful. I mean, to me, uh, the people in the book are among the greatest heroes in world history. And for a variety of reasons, they've not really gotten the attention that they deserve. And many of them are unknown. And I think in addition to honoring them, there's a great deal we can learn from them and be inspired by them to try to make the world that we live in a better place. It's well known that six million Jews were murdered during World War II as part of Hitler's final solution. And there have been many books and films made about the horrors of the Holocaust. Why has there been so little attention on these amazing stories of heroism and humanity? That's a really good question. And part of the reason was that in the aftermath of the war, you know, as people began to process what happened and new terms were being developed, like genocide, which is a word that was coined after the war, which Elie Wiesel coined, there was a huge focus on the way the vast majority of people had behaved during the war, which was the spectrum between those who perpetrated the crimes to those who collaborated to those who just went along. 
So a lot of the focus was actually on the evil, a lot of the famous psychological experiments that were done, like the Milgram experiments at Yale or the Stanford prison experiments. We're trying to understand how this could have happened, how so many people could have participated. And then there was also a separate phenomenon where many of the survivors at that time had survived camps and so had not actually been rescued, although there were many people who had been rescued. And there was a concern that if you focused on the heroes who were so rare. I mean, Yad Vashem in Jerusalem has recognized 27,000 people, which sounds like a large number, but that was out of 500 million people. And even if you multiply it by 100, it's still a fraction of 1% of people who would have done anything. I mean, if you filled Madison Square Garden with a cross-section of people, one person out of the entire stadium would have been a rescuer. So there was a question about whether it would distort the record. But the generation of, especially the children that had been saved and hidden in the 60s sort of started to change the narrative and really wanted to honor them. And, and Yad Vashem in, in Jerusalem, from its beginning, was set up, and one of its core missions was to honor people who rescued Jews. I think there's also an element that we tend to focus on, you know, horror and negativity, not that, you know, this is a very important moment in history and has to be studied, but it is unfortunate that there hasn't been more attention because also the stories do really resonate. So for many years, people knew Raul Wallenberg. And then after the Spielberg movie, people heard of Oscar Schindler, and that was about it. And that's about it to this day. And as one of the first people who started to talk about the righteous in the 60s said, there's a real historical injustice that so many people would know the name of Himmler or Goering, but not know the name of, for example, Aristides de Souza Mendes, who was a Portuguese diplomat He's a chapter in my book. He saved more people than any single individual during the Holocaust, as many as 30,000 people, which is many, many more than, than Oscar Schindler. But his name has been lost to history. So it's a phenomenon that I hope to correct with this book, because, again, I think there's an element of gratitude. We all owe these people for their heroism. And there's also really important lessons that we can learn today. And when I've written about these previously for newspapers, my experience has been that the response has been enormous. And I think people really are looking for stories of hope and stories of courage and of people doing the right thing at really the worst moment in history. And there's a line that you quote in the book that darkness cannot drive out darkness, that only light can do that. Yes, that's a quote from, uh, from Martin Luther King. And that's so significant because even today in our culture and our society, we tend to focus on the darkness and using darkness to try and drive out darkness, fighting fire with fire. And you say that there's a profound lesson to be learned from the actions of these heroic and selfless humanitarian people. What was it about these people that set them apart from the majority of people who just stood by or worse? That's another really interesting question and something that I did a lot of research into and also a lot of thinking about as I went through these stories. In terms of individuals, I mean, there, there were a handful of studies that were done when many of these rescuers were still alive. There were too few of them, but there were a couple. And the most comprehensive study, which was done by a couple called the Oliners, um, these conclusions were a little bit unsatisfying because the only correlation that they found, but it's worth mentioning, had not education, not religion, not career path. It had to do with how you were disciplined as a child. 
I do think there are many things we can learn from that. And what they found was that if you were a child whose parent disciplined you in a loving way, in a rational way, who explained to you what you had done wrong and why you were being punished, that tended to correlate much more with altruism and the interest in helping others. And if you had a parent that punished you irrationally and and with violence and 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 didn't you know came out of the blue that that tended to correlate much more with a desire for authoritarianism and, and order beyond that i do think the most important thing about those findings is that that the most important thing that almost universally uh you would find with the rescuers is they all had some parent or other role model as a child that taught them that it was very important to help others to tolerate others that people who were different from them were equal to them that often put them in interaction with with people of different religions or races or or creeds uh, and but who also had a strong moral compass so i think of everything we can have a huge impact by how we as parents deal with our children and as adults deal with children in, in society the rescuers tended to be people who had strong self esteem they tended to be people who thought for themselves. Um, and, and some of that, again, has to do with being valued as a child. Um, I found also that there were a number of things that made people do this in terms of their life's experiences. So religion, which could cut both ways, but those people who really took whatever their religion was, the teachings to heart, things like, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, really that probably saved more people than anyone, as opposed to people who were attracted to religion for the hierarchy of the church or or, or other kind of external reasons. Um, people who were in creative professions, people who were in professions like diplomats that brought them in contact constantly with people from other countries and other cultures. After there's a definite trend and uh, outsized number of those types of people uh, who helped. And then I think one other thing that I I've looked at, and I wrote an article about this a week ago for the Wall Street Journal, is that there were also certain communities that came together as a unit to stand up to the Nazis. And in many cases, they were able to save as many as between 95 and 100% of the Jews there. The most famous is the entire country of Denmark, but you also had Albania, the only majority Muslim country in Europe where there were more Jews there at the end of the war than at the beginning of the war. Or you had the Protestant village of Les Chambons in France, which had a pastor that was actually a major figure in the nonviolent movement. You had an island, an island off the coast of Greece. And there were many different reasons for why these communities came together. But one thing that was important is they all had an ethos of viewing their neighbors as the same as them. They didn't have a history of bigotry and they supported each other. In Holland, where you know Anne Frank was hit and which had a mixed record, but what did have a lot of rescuers, one rescuer was quoted as saying, you know, we were the tip of the spear, these people who risked their lives, which was a very, very, I mean, you have to put yourself in the position of people there. I mean, people in some countries, not only were risking their own lives, they were risking the lives of their families. There were terrible consequences for helping others. But what really made the difference, this gentleman said, wasn't just that, you know, those people at the tip of the spear, it was the community that kind of looked the other way and supported them. So if you were in a country where a rescue was going on and people sort of just minded their own business that led to rescue and if you were in unfortunately many countries or communities where people would run to turn in a rescuer for a reward or out of kind of bigotry or malice um, then that's where you had rescue was not successful um, so so those are some of the lessons that i've learned from the research that i did on these stories 
And it's interesting how many of the people in this book who helped save Jews during World War II were diplomats, career diplomats. And in their role as diplomats, they had the ability to issue visas and various kinds of transit papers for Jews and other refugees who were trying to escape Nazi persecution. But it's still, I mean, even people with these kind of backgrounds that you you talked about, they still had to struggle with their conscience because they were often having to go against, you know, the orders of their own nation's foreign policy. Yes. Diplomat rescue is its, it's kind of a, its own topic because there were, in terms of not only numbers of rescuers, but also the amount of people they could help because of the position that they were in, um, there are a number of extraordinarily heroic diplomats from many different countries, uh, including I, I profile a Japanese diplomat who was posted in Lithuania, uh, Sugahara, who's probably also an intelligence officer. But yes, the point you make is is really important because there were a number, a significant number of diplomats that helped people because they, as a diplomat, you were in a position to do so because you could issue visas and visas were the most important documents you could have to save your life. And those stories of, you know, the U.S. and its lack of help is is well known. But in terms of the number of diplomats as a percentage that actually did anything, it was very small because most countries at that time were very adamantly opposed to bringing in refugees. And so in order to many, most, many of these diplomats did what they did in direct defiance of orders that they had, or they were at the edge of what was permissible and, and, and really pushing the envelope. And consequently, many of them actually were, were punished and had very difficult lives after the war. Uh, Susan Mendez was disciplined and fired and basically had his life ruined. The Portuguese diplomat Sugahara, the Japanese diplomat, was fired, Went ended up going door to door, selling light bulbs to try to support his family. Um, I have one chapter of the story of Varian Fry, who was not a diplomat, but worked closely with Hiram Bingham from the State Department. Um, both of them, they saved many of the most renowned intellectuals, Jewish and not Jewish. Uh, they brought all the surrealists to the United States, Mark Chagall, Marcel Duchamp, Hannah Arendt, many of the German writers, Heinrich Mann, they gave a great gift to the United States in terms of culture and saved thousands of people. And yet Bingham was basically forced out of the State Department, um, never really was able to find his footing again, had 11 children and kind of had a very difficult time after the war. Fry was not a diplomat, but was expelled at the behest of the State Department by Vichy, um, also was kind of ostracized in a period after the war, never really recognized, died at a premature age. So diplomats were often able to help, but didn't. And the rare few that did were punished by their governments, including the United States, for defying their orders because the orders were more important than the humanitarian impulse. And of course, since then, almost all of these people that I'm talking about have been honored, right? So, so you know, Susan Mendez is now a hero for the Portuguese. And, you know, Bingham has been honored by the State Department and Fry has been honored, was given the Medal of Righteous Among the Nations. And Sugahara has been, but but it, but that was not the case at the time. And it took, in some cases, 50 or 60 years for them to be recognized. And most of them never were thanked in their lifetime. In fact, they were told they had done the wrong thing. So, 
you know, that is something that we look back in history and say, okay, it was obvious what they should be doing. But I also think at the same time, this is an issue that continues today. And as we have refugee crises, you know, even as they've played out in the last few years, we've seen moments where people have been left behind and the government has slammed the door. And, you know, it's a very difficult decision for people in the foreign service and other places to make, whether whether you listen to your conscience or you listen to your government. And and many of those people who, you know, are in that profession, you know, if they work for a bureaucracy. And so the rules there are are pretty clear and and it's unusual for people to do what someone like Susan Mendez did, who who was a devout Catholic and a humanitarian. And even he had a moment of crisis when confronted with thousands of refugees outside his door. And then he finally said, I I would rather stand with God against man than man against God. But those are stories, you know, that while there are many diplomats, they are in the context of the profession, pretty few and far between. It's also interesting how there were a lot of complications, you know, getting visas and other transit papers because visas weren't enough. You had to travel across borders between different countries. And back then, it could be extremely difficult and even very dangerous to try and cross borders. And it was often very difficult to get, you know, all of the necessary transit papers, even if you had a visa, even if you were issued a visa. So this was a very complex situation, especially for people, particularly Jews, who were desperately trying to escape, like particularly in uh, southern France, when the Nazis were entering southern France and pursuing the Jews. Absolutely. Uh, It was almost Orwellian in terms of the bureaucracy, because, for example, in France, you needed um, an exit visa, which was very difficult to procure. And then you needed a transit visa to go across the countries that you were going through. And often those transit visas were very temporary because it was really just to pass through on the way somewhere else. And then you needed a visa to somewhere like the United States. Um, And these visas often had expiration dates. So you had many instances of people who actually could end up getting all three visas. And then, you know, one of them would be expired. So it was almost an impossible task to get all of your papers in order. And so then people did, of course, even if they had two out of the three, they might have to cross a border. And some of the heroes in my book actually helped people across borders. There were guides and, uh, in the, you know, in the south of France, Susan Mendes himself personally escorted some people and Fry and Bingham and their team would also sneak people, some of whom were quite famous, across the Pyrenees. And, you know, there was this constant fear that if you got caught without the right papers, sometimes fake paper, you know, there there was a whole underground of creating false papers that was necessary that saved many lives. That that is, in fact, as the war went on, how many people escaped through counterfeit papers, which was a big part of rescue in the underground. But, you know, it it was a very almost like a cruel joke that was played. Now, joke is the wrong word, but there was a lot of cruelty in this because you know, you even if you were able to get all of your papers, you know, you had people who said, oh, sorry, you know, and because many of the people, again, who were the gatekeepers did not want to help. They, you know, they, they didn't want Jews or other refugees in their country because of, you know, the burden of, of dealing with them or places like the United States, where there was just this view of, you know, we don't want these kind of people coming here. So people were more than happy to use technicalities like, oh, your visa, your third visa expired yesterday. Sorry, 
to not allow you in. But again, a, a number of these rescuers sort of didn't take no for an answer. So there were some very harrowing instances of escape across borders. And, you know, there was the instance of the tragic instance of Walter Benjamin, the, the famous philosopher who actually made it across to Spain, learned that his visa wasn't going to be accepted, ended up committing suicide. And then the next day they changed the rule and said actually it would have been accepted. So there was just like horrible tragedy like that. And these diplomats knew that the visas that they were giving these people were just one step in the process. And yet they still chose to uh, put their own careers and families' well-being at risk just to do this. And I'm thinking of Sugihara, the unlikely Japanese diplomat since Japan was allied with Germany, and how he literally spent days, successive days, just con constantly issuing visas and serving tea all at the same time, he wasn't even able to eat because it was so hectic and, and so crowded. And he just totally gave himself. Yeah, the Sugahara is an amazing story. And um, he saved several thousand Jews. And I actually, in my own experience, have met not only people who have written to me that he saved their family, but people that I actually know. Because when you save several thousand people, then, you know, today there's probably 20,000 people alive because of him. But yes, he was a brilliant guy, had spent part of his life outside of Japan and mostly in uh, Manchuria and in, in Harbin, which was a multicultural city. It was filled with Russians and Chinese and some Jews. And he resigned from there, actually, because he couldn't take the treatment the Japanese were, uh, the way they treated the Chinese. And then he was posted to Lithuania in a town where they'd never seen a Japanese person before. And the reason he was actually there was to monitor the uh, troop movements of the Soviets and the Germans because the Japanese military was trying to figure out, they had concluded, which you know was came as a surprise to much of the world, that they concluded that those two countries, which were allied at the time, would end up at war. And so he was there as a, partly as an intelligence officer, but ended up with many, many, many refugees, uh, particularly from Poland, appearing outside of his consulate. And like Sousa Mendez, you know, he, he just couldn't bear the suffering. And what he was able to do was issue transit visas through Japan. Because of his relations with the Russians, he was actually also able to, they think, we, you know, it's a little murky because, again, it was, you know, sort of espionage kind of stuff, but he was able to cut a deal with the Russians that the refugees could travel across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. It was a, almost a two-week journey. And while this was going on, his, his government did not want him to issue the visas. And also, there was enormous pressure to close the consulate from the Russians because they had basically annexed Lithuania. So he had a very short period of time and he sat there and wrote and 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 the way a Japanese visa worked is you know he had to sign his his name in a whole paragraph in almost in calligraphy so his hand was extraordinary I mean it was just a very labor intensive thing actually to even write the visa and he sat there for weeks just signing every visa he possibly could um, he worked with a Dutch diplomat who wasn't really a diplomat he was a businessman that had been appointed honorary consul days before the war um, Jan Schwarzendijk and what was important there was. They had figured out that Curacao in the Caribbean actually didn't require a visa technically. And so he was able to issue quasi visas to Curacao. And so people would get them from him and then they would go over to the Japanese embassy. So they kind of worked in tandem. And Sugahara would sign it to allow people to transit Japan for 10 days. And he was so impassioned by doing this that when the, 
he finally got a telegram from the government. You must close the embassy. He put a sign up on the door. It said, I, I will be at the, the following hotel for the next few days. And he went to the hotel and continued to sign visas. And then when he had to finally go on the train to leave, he continued to sign visas while he was on the platform. And then once the train was moving, he actually ended up, uh, you know, giving the stationery to people and said, look, fill out visas if you can. And apparently some of those worked as well. So it was extraordinarily dramatic scene. And, and you know, his wife wrote a memoir where she talked about how he just did this from morning to night. And, and the other thing about him was many people who um, met him and testified later recalled how kind he was and what a gentleman and how he would try to put the people at ease. And as you mentioned, he served them tea and he would he would wish them good luck. And 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 there's a great line he had where he said, you know, people say the United States is a civilized country. I will show them that Japan is a civilized country too. And so I always thought when I was writing this, you know, what it must have been like for somebody who was on the run, you know, for your life. And many of them were teenagers and to meet, you know, everyone's turning you away and to meet someone, you know, who was so far away from their own home who just had this very, as it's described, gentle, kindly demeanor and who saved their life. And there were many instances of people testifying that they just like burst into tears and people would kiss his hand and kiss his feet. And he would say, no, 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 I just, please, please, I'm just, I'm just doing the right thing. And that is something actually that many of these rescuers, they really didn't feel that they had done anything particularly extraordinary. They just, they often didn't tell anyone and they, they would just say, you know, I, I did what anybody else would have done, which of course is is not the case, but I do think they really did believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was part of what it took to be designated a righteous among nations. And could you talk about that designation and the criteria for that? Yeah, so so the the righteous among the nations is a is a an award that's given by the Israelis by Yad Vashem, and it has extraordinarily stringent criteria. And in, in some ways, I think it, too stringent because there are many things people did which we can talk about. To, save people that didn't rise to this level, but but you basically had to have risked your life or your career to save people. You couldn't be Jewish, so it's only for people who are not Jewish, and they had to have saved some Jewish people, because again, it's given in Israel, and there has to be eyewitness testimony for some, some real proof now. I mean, many of the eyewitnesses are no longer living, but they still do give the award, often posthumously, and you cannot have received anything in return for what you did. So uh, certainly not money, but even, you know, any favors or any, it had to have done purely for humanitarian reasons. And to date, um, almost 28,000 people have received the award. And the title of my book, In the Garden of the Righteous, actually comes from the place at that memorial museum where every time they honor someone, they plant a tree. And now there's a huge garden in honor of, of those people, but it is extraordinarily stringent. And, um, you know, you have to think about all of the people who rescued and we never knew about it because they were caught. It was unsuccessful. They died or the people they tried to rescue it was unsuccessful. So there was nobody to testify. And then there were, I think, you know, even small gestures. Primo Levi wrote about who survived Auschwitz when he was still imprisoned in Italy, a laborer named Lorenzo, who every day would bring him soup. And that Primo Levi wrote, he believed saved his life because it made him feel that he was still a person and someone cared. And so, you know, those people who let someone stay in their house for the night or brought them food, they contributed as well. But even if we were to multiply the 28,000 by 100, you're still, again, talking about 
a tiny fraction of a percent. But those people who received the Righteous Among the Nations medal really, because the criteria is so strict, I mean, these are people who, who basically risk their lives and in some cases the lives of their family and community to help others who many times they didn't even know they were strangers. And these weren't necessarily people who, you know, they were they were people like all of us. They were complicated. Some of them, you know, had some minor degrees of anti-Semitism, but they just didn't believe Jews should be murdered for their religion or for being born. But they're all they're all amazing, amazing people. My guest is Richard Horowitz. He's the author of this book we've been talking about, In the Garden of Righteousness, The Heroes Who Risked Their Lives to Save Jews During the Holocaust. Many of these people were also very modest about what they had done and rarely, if ever, even talked about what they had done. Yeah, that that was almost universal. And I mean, they're just extraordinarily modest and just really believed in many cases that they were behaving the way. I mean, it's just the testimony is is eerie. How often you would hear someone use almost the same verbiage. I just did what anybody would do. I just did the right thing. I did the decent thing. And sometimes they would tell their children. I mean, I, I have one chapter on one of the most famous athletes in Europe at the time, Gino Bartoli, who was won the Tour de France in 1938, saved 700 people, never told anybody. And actually, when the story started to come out, he was adamant that, you know, he, there was a movie that was being made that sort of tangentially talked about it. He wanted to to sue the, <laughs> the producers so that it not air on Italian television. Um, you know, they never, uh, and many of them never, in the case of Sugahara and particularly Jan Schwarzendijk, didn't, they never knew what happened to the people they saved because many of the people they saved didn't know their names. And then there was a whole set of people in Eastern Europe where behind the Iron Curtain, it was quite dangerous to have been a rescuer because there was institutional anti-Semitism. It meant you also probably worked in the underground with the Allies. So there were people who would receive the medal and put it in the drawer and never tell anybody. So, and, and rescuers were, you know, again, as we've talked about, were really punished after the war and disliked. People threw rocks at Oskar Schindler in the streets of Germany. So there were many reasons why people were really punished almost for being rescuers. But you are correct. I mean, the almost universal trait among these people was a profound modesty. And they just they just did what they thought was right and what their moral and in many cases religious beliefs told them to do. And they didn't think it was something that you bragged about. I mean, Bartoli said to his son, like, good is something you do and don't talk about, because I think he felt that if you talked about it, you sort of debased it. And it wasn't something that he did for credit or to be thanked. He did it because it was, you know, the right thing to do. And there were there were people in distress. Another rescuer in my book, Irena Senla, her father had told her, if you see someone drowning, help them. She rescued 2,500 small children and infants from the Warsaw ghetto and never told anybody the story didn't come out until she was well into her 80s. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing story. And I think that was also included in Judy Battalion's book, The Light of Days. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an unknown story. And it was actually discovered by a National History Day project of a bunch of teenage girls in, in Kansas. And then uh, it came out because it was so extraordinary. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening of Poland, she was honored. She's actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, there's a wonderful book actually called um, called Life in a Jar by a, a, a pediatrician who lives in, in Vermont, actually, who, uh, which is how I came across the story because he spoke at my daughter's school here in New York. And we ended up talking and, and, and he was very helpful because he had actually met Irena Sendler when she was still alive. 
So there's actually a Vermont connection to that story for what it's worth. And in the last story in the book, you write about a teenage Jewish girl who gets separated from her mother and sister, and they're on a forced death march for like hundreds of miles without food, and they're getting continual beatings from their SS guards. Um, could you tell us about that story? And and there's also a very touching reunion story at the end of that, which is like all of the stories in this book were just so deeply touching. Yes, um, it is an amazing story. And again, some of the stories in my book involve the rescue of thousands of people. This one is the rescue of one person. And there was a girl who was a teenager and they lived in Lithuania and actually it's an interesting subtext is the Germans versus the Russians in that chapter because her father had grown up and been so terrorized by the Russians that he made the decision to stay. The family made the decision to stay when the Germans came, thinking it couldn't be worse than the Russians. Of course it was. And the father was killed and the mother and this girl and her older sister went to a series of camps. And then in the waning days of the war, as the Red Army was descending on the camps, the Germans in yet another horrific atrocity that was committed, decided all over Eastern Europe to march people in the freezing cold, because in large part, they didn't want people to see what had happened in the camps. So they left behind the very sick, but they started marching all of these people westward to Germany under horrific conditions, and just many, many people died. So they were called the death marches, and people were starving, and they had no shoes marching through the hundreds of miles through the called beaten and by the SS. And this girl, when she came to a town, they were desperate for bread. And she left her mother and sister in line and then ran off to try to get bread for her family and uh, ended up being chased by a group of people and hid in a barn and was emaciated. I mean, was found by a British POW who was had been imprisoned with nine other British soldiers in a labor camp. So the conditions were obviously much better for British POWs, but they were living in this area with Russian POWs as German prison camps. And this man's name was Stan Wells, a uh, working class British soldier, found her, uh, didn't even, said when he found her, he actually thought, didn't realize it was a person, he thought it was a pile of rags, but ended up, he found her, she was hiding, terrified. He fed her and then went back to his comrades. And this was weeks before the end of the war, everyone knew it. So these were people who had been in POWs for several years. They were moments away from going home and there was a russian girl there as well and the, and the girl went, russian girl went to the russian camp prisoners and he went to his comrades and the russians said we're not hiding her and the 10 british POWs said we will hide this girl so they brought her to the barn they lived in they put her in a hayloft they kind of nursed her back to health one of them was a medic and for three weeks they hit her and if they had been caught at any point in time all of them would have been executed and as she said later when she testified to get them the righteous award you know they, they were so close they could taste freedom and, and it had to be unanimous if any one of the 10 had said no but none of them even thought about saying no i mean they would you know um they, they didn't think of any other you know anything other than trying to help her and so they rescued her and then when the russians came you know they they had to leave. Um, and so they offered to either take her with her or she could stay and wait for the Russians. She opted to stay behind and ended up after uh, a long period of time, she went back home, realized her family didn't survive. Um, she came here as an orphan to New York, created a new life, ended up marrying a judge, became very involved as a 
political activist with the Refuseniks in, in Soviet Union, and and then one day um, met someone who had contacts in the London government and decided to try to track down the people who had saved her. And she sent a letter and ended up getting in contact with one of them and 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 met him in London. And then um, that was written up in the newspaper. And then another one of the POWs read this story in the newspaper and said, that sounds like something that I was involved with. And told he had been in touch with some of the other POWs. Anyway, they all the POWs ended up finding each other. And then there was this very dramatic reunion in 1974, where all 10 of the soldiers met this woman whose name is Sarah Matheson, who's actually still alive. And uh, she had two children by then. And there was this very beautiful reunion of the 10 of them um, and her. And they've all been honored. Uh, by, when they were honored, five of them had passed away. But they stayed in touch uh, after that. And they all stayed in touch with each other. And they always talked about how they viewed her as kind of their younger sister. And, you know, I think it, it's a very beautiful story. And, and it's very beautiful in the way that, you know, when you read their testimony, and one of them kept a contemporaneous diary at the time, and they, they were from all different backgrounds. And one was a communist and subsequently kind of disavowed that. But he, they, they wrote about her and the horror that they saw when they saw the death march come through town. They just could not believe what the Germans had done. It was so horrific to them. And at, and at the same time, other people in Germany were lining the streets to kind of watch it like a parade and a spectacle. And they were, you know, kind of jeering at the Jews as they went by. And, and these 10 British POWs to a man all, and they were young, quite young at the time. I mean, they all just couldn't imagine doing anything other than saving her. And again, it was a great risk to them. And it was a risk they took when they were almost about to be liberated themselves and knew that. So this past Friday was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And at the beginning of your book, you talk about your experience of going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Could you talk about the effect that that had on you? Sure. The museum opened when I was in college and my family took a trip down to see it. You know, none of my family actually was... uh, We've all been in the United States for many generations. My, my wife's family, her, uh, my mother-in-law's family did escape from Germany. But at the time, you know, I, I don't have a personal connection to the Holocaust other than being Jewish. But it had a profound effect on me. And when you go through that exhibit and you see the artifacts and you see what the Nazis did, and it's intentionally extremely difficult and extremely upsetting. And I still remember to this day, there's a pile of shoes from people who died in the camps. And many of the shoes are children's sizes. I mean, we have to remember that 6 million Jews perished. Of them, 1.5 million children died at the hands of the Nazis. And I remember coming out of that exhibit, and at the end, there was a room devoted to the righteous and sort of the very small number of people who did the right thing. And I remember gravitating to a picture of a young guy who at the time was around my age, and he had a pipe in his mouth and looked very happy. And this was, uh, and the book, picture's in my book. Um, And he was part of a group called the White Rose, who were students in college and medical school who tried to foment a uprising against the Nazi regime in the mid, you know, the middle of the war. They were among the first people to publicize the Holocaust. They issued leaflets saying, this is not the Germany that we know. And they were subsequently caught um, really were sadly unsuccessful in their very heroic efforts. Hitler sent this personal 
judged down and within days they were executed. And it's an amazing story. And one that actually, there are many schools named after, particularly the brother and sister that that founded the group Hans and Sophie Scholl in Germany, but they're very unknown outside of Germany. But the story really stuck with me and I found it very powerful. And on the 75th anniversary of their execution, I wrote an article for the New York Times just honoring them. And the response that I got was so strong. There were so many people that were touched by their story and a story of young people trying to stand up and do the right thing. That was really um, the inspiration for writing this book, because I think they really were shining lights in a very, very dark time. And they were motivated by so many, you know, I mean, Hans Scholl had attended the Nuremberg rallies and had been hard. It was a member of the Hitler youth had been horrified by them. So they were in the middle of all the people being brainwashed, yet they had this moral compass. Their father had always told them, you, you, you must do the right thing. And they were both moved by religion, but also by a strong feeling for liberal democracy and, and freedom. And they just felt this wasn't the country that they, the Germany that they knew. And so the, the story has stayed with me since then. And I, I think, again, these stories are very undertold, but when people hear them, they're enormously inspiring. I mean, obviously Schindler's List had an enormous impact on a lot of people, and yet we don't really focus on heroism during this period of time. Yeah, it seems that kindness and altruism go against our modern, you know, economic, political, and ideological interests and values even. Well, I think, you know, who and what a culture values is really important. And I don't think we do enough to value people. And we do it when something terrible happens. So during COVID, there was a moment when, you know, everyone was outside applauding the nurses and the and, and the doctors. And, you know, I'm a New Yorker. And I remember after 9-11, everyone would applaud the firemen and the first responders and the police. But that's not really at the moment who our society values. And, you know, maybe it's a sign of decadence. But at the same time, I think there is an audience for this. And I think that um, people really, there are many people across the political spectrum, the socioeconomic spectrum that want to hear these stories. I think many people want to believe that they would have behaved this way. Of course, most of us would not have, but we certainly could have behaved the way all of those people did that sort of quietly supported this, which, which also made a difference. So, you know, I think we're at a moment also where there is a lot of polarization and there's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. And I think we'll never have a, um, as my, my friend Abe Fox, who ran the ADL said, you know, we, we're never going to have a vaccine against anti-Semitism and racism and bigotry, but we can do a lot to contain it. And we were making good progress. And then, um, you know, we've maybe backslid, but I am a believer in, you quoted Martin Luther King earlier in his belief that the, the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. I think we make progress and I think we can make a lot of progress by highlighting, you know, not just people who save Jews during the Holocaust, but people who do the right thing today. Um, I mean, I know a number of people that save people in Afghanistan. I know people who are trying to save people in Ukraine. And I actually think even, um, you know, standing up to bigotry, even cruelty, bullying, I mean, like, this movement in schools that sometimes people make fun of, of kind of anti-bullying, I think is quite real. And I think teaching children to do that and creating a group setting where like, that's actually not acceptable, that really has a big impact immediately and it has a big long-term impact. So I wrote this book out of a, actually a sense of optimism, you know, because I do know that 
whenever I tell these stories, people react to them. And it's a rare instance where anybody actually has the opposite effect. I have other things I've written about where people, you know, can get quite upset or debated or whatever, but, but it's hard to, it's hard even for people who, um, whatever your views to criticize somebody like a Susan Mendez or an Arena Sendler who just, you know, risk their lives for other people and just, you know, really represent, I think the best in what, what people can be. And there were even German soldiers during World War II who were sympathetic to the plight of the Jews. Yes. I mean, the Wehrmacht, I mean, you know, this is the, many of these people were conscripts and the Navy even more so. Um, I mean, like in Le Chambon, the town in France, there were German soldiers who were convalescing and, and they would say, you know, they're, <laughs> to, you know, they were in a hotel and the, one of them would say like, you know, this place is crawling with Jews and like the person who ran the hotel said that's not true and the guy said yeah it is but like we don't care like they didn't want to have anything to do with it but yeah i mean even in, there was a member of the nazi party who was not like oscar schindler not an anti-semite but um who was a member of the government and occupying government in denmark and he uh had many jewish friends and and it was this man georg dukovitz who tipped off the danish government and ended up really being the the spark that led to the rescue of almost the entire population of the danish jews who were mostly rowed by a huge portion of the Danish population across the Straits to Sweden. Um, so yes, that's true. But there were also many people who agreed with Hitler, unfortunately. And we, you also saw at the end of the war, you know, we started at that time making statements about, which is also kind of an interesting, you know, lesson that we were going to hold people responsible for atrocities. And that made a big difference because at the end of the war, a number of people started to think twice and if we had done it earlier, maybe that would have made a difference. When they knew they were going to lose, they started to think twice about what they were doing. And there was a reason also that people were desperate to surrender to British or Americans or Canadians and not Russians at that time. So that's why I think it's important that we say, you know, like in places like Ukraine, we will hold people responsible because, you know, once people start to think that that actually might become a reality, it does start to affect their behavior. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us about Andre Trochme, is that how you pronounce his name? Trochme, yes, of course. One of the things that was so inspiring about him is not only was, was he so sympathetic to the plight of the Jews, but he would actually stand up to German officers right in their face and just refuse to cooperate with them. Yes, it's an amazing story. And um, I think Andre Trochme would say that he was a pastor and his wife, was his partner and all this, and she was an Italian aristocrat. And I actually interviewed his daughter, who's in her 90s, who was a teenager at the time for the book. Um, he was uh, from the north of France, from a wealthy family. He actually was spent time in New York, was the two French tutor to the Rockefellers, and then joined the ministry. And he was a Protestant, which is unusual in France. And he and his wife were passionate believers in nonviolence and became important leaders in the nonviolent movement you know, knew uh, Gandhi and later met Martin Luther King, etc. Uh, they were posted to a small village that was part of a plateau that had been Protestant for generations. Uh, they were descendants of Huguenots who had themselves been persecuted. So there was a general um, tradition of welcoming refugees there. And Trochme and a number of other pastors, there was also an infrastructure of schools and camps because of the weather and people would send their children there. And he ended up, uh, he was a pacifist, but he wanted to do something for the war effort. So he tried to volunteer as an ambulance driver. He wasn't allowed to, but he 
ended up working with the initially with the Quakers where they could get some children out of these horrible internment camps in France where people were dying of disease and they ultimately they'd be deported to you know to east and be liquidated and they started to bring children mostly but also some adults to to Le Chambon and they ended up saving 5000 people 3500 Jews many of whom were children who the entire village there's not one instance of betrayal many of these people were not highly educated but they were highly devout people and there's not one instance of anyone turning in a refugee um and many of the children later said they didn't feel afraid they gave them the semblance of a normal childhood they went to school and whenever they had to hide because it'd be a roundup they knew everyone was protecting them and and, and yes they would have people from uh from first the french gendarme and then the germans would come and trochme even though he was a uh, non nonviolent he would stand up to them and say that you know no we don't know if they're jews and then he, or he would say you know if i even had a list of jews i wouldn't give it to you and and they backed down and he was um ultimately at one point arrested with his friend who was the assistant pastor and the local schoolmaster and put in a political camp he he was freed later he went into hiding because he was on a gestapo hit list um and he had to go into hiding and this was an area where there, there was also some resistance it was a hotbed of resistance as well and albert camus was in the town next door writing the plague and but he was yeah he was able to stand up to the nazis it was a enormously courageous outspoken leader of the community and again the entire community came together and was again someone really devoted to nonviolence and the moral high ground he wasn't afraid of risking his life again he wanted to serve as an ambulance driver or something else at the front but uh, he'd been profoundly affected as a child by his experience during the first world war when he had seen the horrors of uh, his fa- his family lived near the where the battle of the Somme took place and had seen just horrific and, and had had a lifelong aversion to violence of any kind but but also had this strong moral compass and yeah there are amazing scenes where he would stand up to the senior nazi and german officers and and you know kind of almost challenge them to to they could have easily shot him but they they backed down and you know that took enormous courage and was extraordinarily successful and effective again they saved thousands of jews including including many children and it was quite quite heroic yeah these are such wonderful inspiring stories and it's been so great to talk with you about all of this oh thank you so much for having me on this was a, a wonderful conversation my guest has been richard horowitz he's the author of this book we've been talking about in the garden of righteousness the heroes who risked their lives to save jews during the holocaust richard thank you so much for being on the show and sharing these wonderful stories with us Well, thank you so much for having me.
It's the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. This is Elie Wiesel. My fellow survivors and all of you who are here today. In truth, having witnessed last night the solidarity of people who went through the worst of human imagination in evil, we of course have heard voices that are appeals not only to hope, but also to generosity in our lives. That is the message. Why? Because is it so important? It's important because we believe it. What you heard is an indictment, a terrible indictment of leadership in those years. It is very hard for me to name names but I must tell you in all sincerity that in my little town somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains the name Franklin Delano Roosevelt was better known than the names of our own heroes Herzl, Ben Gurion. Why? Because we were convinced that he as a father figure not only to Americans but to the Jewish people a carrier of noble ideals who galvanized generations to democracy and after all led America and its might to war against evil. And then after the war only, when researching history source, historic sources, we realized that even Roosevelt had some shortcomings when it came to save Jews. We must say that because here we are committed to truth. It's a painful truth. Roosevelt was a great man. He has done great things for America and the world. But when it came to save Jewish lives, he could have done it earlier. But no one was perfect. And we cannot not say what is in our heart. 
gratitude, but also a certain measure of sadness. What are we learning here? In France, there is some, a Palais de Chaillot, which is dedicated to human rights and human dignity. It is written in stone. Passerby enter here, but do not enter this place without desire. In this museum, which is a monument to human suffering, but also to human courage to overcome suffering. In this museum, the frontispiece should actually read, Passerby. Do not enter this place without fear, but nor without hope. Fear of what humanity has done to itself by failing for such a long time to save those who were threatened by the common enemy. But at the same time, later, these very nations and their leaders did stand up to the moral obligation in history to fight evil with all the weapons at our disposals. So between these two temptations is what humanity is when it tries to overcome all the disappointments in life and only cling to the best, the noblest in the human spirit and in human dedication to memory, which is a dedication to truth. What do we say to young people? We say to young people, now you are our witnesses because you will go beyond our lives. We say to young people, you are our hope. Whatever we do now is not only for the sake of the past, but surely also for the sake of the future. And you are our future. And we believe, therefore, that whatever we are trying to do here, whatever witnesses are trying to say in their testimonies, the best and the saddest, you are now the flag bearers. It is your memory that inherits ours. Our memory will live in yours. Remember that, young people, that now you have an ideal, not only an idea, but ideal, the ideal of saving whatever the past has to offer for the future and its heroes and also its victims. What have we learned? I remember when we planned this museum, we were thinking in the beginning, whom are we going to remember? Only the Jews? And I remember we came out with the formulation, being in those times, of course, not all victims were Jews, but all the Jews were victims. We came out with all kinds of ideas of what to do with our memory. Surely not to separate people. It would be false and it would be self-defeating if we told our story simply to separate people from people, nation from nation, or religion from religion. We believe that in opening up the gates of our memory, we bring people closer together. We bring people now to a realization of what 
a human being, a person, an individual can do. And I think of those who saved lives. All these Christians who saved lives while risking their own. Every one of them is a hero. I also remember that once we organized here, when I was still so involved before this extraordinary group of people had led by Tom and by Sarah. Before that, we organized a group for the liberators. We brought liberators from all over the world. And I spoke to them. I said, you are now the first to have seen us. You were the first free men and women who have seen us inside. Be a, bear witness. You be our witnesses. And I remember I was going from one to the other. Members of the resistance in Poland and in Hungary and in everywhere. I said, tell me, what gave you the courage to resist? What gave you the, heart, the courage to become a hero? And all of them answered me, we heroes? People not heroic at all. And one said, look, if my neighbor was in danger, how could I not offer him a place in my cell or in my attic? If a child was running in the street, how could I open the door to save him or her? And I said to myself, woe unto us. In those times, it was enough to be human, to become a hero. My good friends, we are trying here not to make the visitor a hero, but to make the visitor a messenger from one another to one another. A great poet said it in France, and he said, sometimes an open hand is a poem. And this is this museum here. Of course, it becomes a task. It becomes a mission, but it's also a gift. Pathetic, tragic, but so much so filled with grandeur and with nobility that I want you to know, young people, young men and women here, that whatever you will do will only elevate you. It will give a new meaning to your years to come. And I wish you many years of discovery and of being true to your calling and worthy of the moment that we are just living. Thank you. And that was Elie Wiesel.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.